0: Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts. It's my distinct pleasure to introduce our two speakers. Alexander Nemirov has served since 2012 as the Carl and Marian Toma Provostial Professor of the Arts and Humanities Department of Art and Art History at Stanford University. He previously served as chair of the Department of the History of Art, Yale University, where he earned his master's and doctoral degrees. A scholar of American art, Nemirov writes about the presence of art, the recollection of the past, and the importance of the humanities in our lives today. Committed to teaching the history of art more broadly, as well as topics in American visual culture, especially the history of American photography. His most recently published books include To Make a World, George Alt, and 1940s America, the catalog also to the exhibition, the same title he curated at the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Acting in the Night, Macbeth and the Places of the Civil War, Soulmaker, The Times of Lewis Hine, and Silent Dialogues, Diane Arbus and Howard Nemirov, an intimate reflection on the photographer Diane Arbus, his aunt and sister of his father, the Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Howard Nemirov. He is currently working on a book on Helen Frankenthaler's painting in the 1950s. Clifford Ross, whom I feel needs almost no introduction to the parish audience, but I'm going to do it anyway, Um, He's a multimedia artist who began his career as a painter and sculptor following his graduation from Yale University in 1974. His interest in photography grew over the intervening decades and in 1994 he began to devote himself to intensive experimentation in the darkroom. In 1996 he began the hurricane wave series entering the Long Island surf near his home during extreme weather often up to his neck while tethered to an assistant on land, his photographic techniques expanded over time using digital media, inkjet printing, and ultimately developing his unique method of printing on wood. In the summer of 2017, his installation, Light Waves, gr- uh, Ali, um, graced the museum, the Parish Museum's south facade, and interior galleries with a monumental LED installation. Ross is the chair of the New York based Helen Frankenthaler Foundation and a nephew of the artist. I'm thrilled that this evening we'll be able to listen to these in for a bit on their wide-ranging and ongoing conversation about art. Thank you.
1: I just wanna mention, this is an unrehearsed conversation between two people who became friends uh, in a sort of an unlikely circumstance. I actually, I knew that Alex was working on a book on my aunt, and I really basically had declined to speak to him, even though I was a big fan of his work, because I just felt talked out. And about some number of months into that, I did get a call saying, come on. And I thought it might be 15 minutes, and months and months, and honestly, I think hours later, I found that there was a friendship that had developed between two guys, who both had an aunt, his Diane Arbus, and with me, Helen, and uh, there was a lot to talk about. We, we both enjoy looking at art, and uh, this is a continuing conversation that you're all invited into. That's pretty much it. Well,
2: I know we were going to talk about why Helen, like why would we, beyond what you just said, beyond your relation to Helen, why, why are we even here? Why? Why would we feel strongly enough about her work to want to share our reflections uh, with these people who are so kind to join us tonight? Do you want to start with that? You know, for me, I was
1: always proud of my aunt. But after she passed, I had a chance to continuously reevaluate what that pride was. So for me, it's honestly a bit of pride of family Mm -hmm. and celebrating an artist I admire. Mm -hmm. how did you get pulled in, and why?
2: I remember as long ago as the 1990s telling my wife, then girlfriend, that I would like to write on Helen Frankenthaler, and I remember her saying, sure honey, that's you do that, good. That's good, And but uh, it took me about 20 years to feel really ready, and I've thought about why that would be, and I think because what Helen's art offers is the seriousness of pleasure. And uh, I think that is a powerf- it was a powerful thing for her then, and it's probably a very powerful thing for us now. And just to sketch that in very briefly, I'd say, you know, one, one reads um, Moby Dick or one is, reads a story about opioid addiction or something like that and feels that will, one will be well situated in the field of gravity, of darkness, of pain, of suffering, and that seriousness lies in the experience and relation to those kinds of feelings. Pleasure is not often thought of as serious, but it, Helen's art really teaches me how profound it is. And by pleasure, I don't mean a movie star doing yoga. I don't mean someone selling us a smooth rock that we can hold in our hands so that we can be more mindful. Forget that, that's, that's um, the commercial co-optation of pleasure. I'm talking about what artists do, why there are art museums. It's because they offer us a way of experiencing the world that is part that is that is there for all of us though we sadly are alienated from it and it has to do with the breathtaking feeling of being alive. I know no other artist in the whole history of art who does that for me like Helen.
1: Just listening to this, we spent some of the day together and one of the things that was so sort of striking, I had been out to Pollock's house a number of times and I made a mental note if I could remember when we were together. As we were driving out there, one of the things you said was, which somehow I found I was surprised by, was, Are we going to pass the spot that Pollock died? Yeah. And it was a window into something which I think is a critical part of who Helen is. And as I've gotten to know Alex's approach to Helen, we see those pictures in this show. There's a radiance. A beauty, sensuality, they're an expression certainly of pleasure and pleasures that Helen was, she was deep into pleasure, but the flip side, which is not as evident always, is there's a thing that that is offsetting and I think the comfort level of our discussion and given our, both our families, we've noodled a little bit at this issue of depression and how sort of ebullience can sometimes be deployed not necessarily to fight the depression, but as the, the flip side of a total personality. And you know, it's something we began to talk about at lunch and with some friends.
2: Yeah, well, there's no better charisma than the kind to be found at a bad bend of road. So it is true that um, I did ask Clifford about Pollock's death curve, and I think that's consistent with the kind of places. I like to go as a historian, cultural historian. I like I've gone to Gettysburg many, many times and that's like our Rembrandt, you know, for Americans. And Helen, I think you're implying had her darkness too, though it may that may seem odd looking at the paintings in the show and behind us and I don't know I mean, we're not here to psychoanalyze her, and indeed that's one of the many kinds of vulgarity, that it's both a pleasure and an obligation to try to avoid when you do what I do or do what he does, you know. The world is plenty vulgar enough, and I'm not going to anoint myself as someone who's magically clear of that I'm part of this culture, but let's not equate the art and the life in some kind of simplistic way. Let's do her the favor of that. But, we were talking about this at lunch today, the art does come out of a life. Only Helen could have painted these paintings. And when I say that, I mean only the person with those experiences could have funneled them out into the pictures you look at, and those, Experiences, I mean you've talked about like um, dancing with her at the Rainbow Room and things like that and how incredibly joyous she was and her smile, her eyes, her beauty. I think she became more and more beautiful as she got older actually. That's what some people have told me. Some said to me she was not beautiful when she was in her 20s. It was when she was in her 30s and 40s that she became beautiful. Go ahead. He no, wants to comment on no, that. No, yeah. Well,
1: it's just interesting. In the, in the moment that we're in, culturally, two guys on a stage, no matter who they are, talking about a woman's beauty, it's loaded. And, <laughs> and listening to this, I'm thinking, what would Helen have said? And you know, one of the things that I can illuminate, if I think there's a curiosity about her, I ran into Mary Heilman, who's here, a wonderful artist. And in listening to Mary as we became friends, I became aware of her drive towards a position in the art world where she, I think, suffered as a woman. And certainly not speaking for Mary, but just to the point, Helen embraced her beauty and she embraced her femininity. She also refused categorically to participate in any exhibition that I'm aware of, of you know paintings by women. I remember her railing about the pressure applied to her Mm -hmm. by the people who put together a museum in Washington, I think it was, a museum of women's or American women's art, I don't know. And she so struggled to be seen as an artist. And at the time, part of her method, honestly, was to embrace her femininity so as not to deny it and say, here I am, you know, I've got good legs, she would always say, and I know how to wear clothes, but I also paint. And I think it's, it's just interesting. I found myself, you know, a slight intake of breath. Oh boy, are we going to get in trouble on this issue? And it's interesting because I actually got strength from listening to Helen. And it's just an interesting part of mm-hmm. her artwork, which is ultimately what mm-hmm. I think both of us are interested in. Who is the person behind that artwork? But that artwork is what we're most interested in. But that, that, that issue of yeah. being a woman. I mean we've talked yeah. different ways
2: about it. It's funny, I would just say well, I've already given my answer of why I'm here, why I've written about Helen, mm-hmm. what her paintings give to me and I never felt like, oh, I'm writing about a woman and therefore or what is my feel. I just love the paintings. Mm-hmm. And then I've gotten to know her fairly well through her letters and everything and I think I've learned a lot about myself as a writer, probably myself as a man writing about this artist in such an intense and intimate way, in such a kind of serious friendship that's required, even though I never met her, in order to kind of come to a meeting place with her so that I can write about her art, write about her life. But I wanna go back to the depression point and just to say you know, that is an aspect of her life that maybe is not apparent when you look at the paintings, and, and yet those paintings represent, I think, a defeat of darkness for Helen, as someone put it to me, who knew her pretty well. Um, and I don't know if you want to say anything about why there would be darkness? It's not,
1: I don't think it's an unknown, but certainly Helen suffered from depression, uh, as many people probably in this audience and even on this stage have. Um, you know, we had an interesting chat at lunch about this with some friends that are visiting. And in our lifetimes, the issue of depression, I think, has sort of come out of the closet, as it were. Helen definitely struggled with it. I was more aware of it in her life as uh, once I reached adulthood. Uh, I was born in 52, and, you know, I think that I really connected with Helen. Really, when I went to college and became deeply interested in art, I was connected to Helen. Before, but my awareness of sort of who she was and what, what she was about yeah. and just to to tie this question into the paintings and briefly to go back to the question of her as a, as a woman i don 't think any man could have painted those paintings and the last room we just went back and took a peek uh, at there was a, a painting which I came to know well, which Alicia very much wanted to see here and i certainly was very happy to lend the picture. It's a picture I live with, and I think it has a lot to do with Helen. It's also a picture I would never have put, because I have such a connection to it, in this slide presentation. Alex was the one who said, we must put it in. And in that large room, there's a picture called Chatham Light, which is a very dark form, black, oozing into a field of, of of raw umber. And when we were looking at it, as we drifted out, we were looking at a small black shape in Flood, the Great Whitney picture. And all of this color had crushed the darkness. The, the black was literally this big in the largest painting. So I think this dynamism, in some way, between sensuality, light, and color, and this part of her personality.
3: Yeah.
2: An yeah. you know. art historian said to me, about Helen, this is very related, but that her art is an art of cause rather than effect, and I thought that was profound um, because it implies that all of this, which I think can seem to an uninitiated person somewhat maybe beautiful but also random, is coming from somewhere, it's caused by something, and I think part of that, it's not just showy, it's not just an effect, and I think part of that cause and yielding in the very robustness of the joy that is present in those pictures has to do with depression, as you say, but I always link her depression to her father died when she was 11, and um, this is no great insight on my part, but he really doted on her. She was the youngest of three daughters. Uh, He died relatively suddenly when he was 58, and I think that really threw her for a loop. Her early adolescence was like she was a mess, as she said, and I think she handled that. Art gave her a way out of that. It was a lifeline. I think also though probably she never fully dealt with that. I will say also her mother, as some of you will know, killed herself in 1954 by jumping off of um, jumping out of her 14th floor uh, apartment and she was 59 she had parkinson's and the paintings you're looking at in the show are from either side of that suicide notice that you could never see that suicide in the work nor should you the paintings ask so much of us just as much as a rembrandt painting and one of the things they ask of us is don't get a biographical crib sheet and then just match it up. Pollock's paintings are not his car crash, they're not his alcoholism, they're not. They're something else, they could only come from him and his the composite of his experiences, absolutely, but we need to get beyond this equation of art and life, so that's one of the things Helen asks of us. And the serious pleasure I was talking about My take on it is that it's in the show there. Tide pools, the sky, the light uh, in the summer on the beach, the feeling of the sand between your toes, even the kind of intimate, woodsy, decaying smell of buildings in this part of the world. I was born in 1963 and we used to vacation in um, Rockport, Massachusetts. And It's like my daughters wouldn't know this, but I have some sense of just, the world in which Helen painted some of these pictures, that kind of damp, humid, musty, smelly, smaller, more intimate world than our world. Even in a beautiful display like this, it's hard. The immaculate installation denatures those pictures and denatures their relation to, here's the word, which is the phrase which is both embarrassing and yet perfectly legitimate, and in fact almost the only legitimacy of art Lived experience, these pictures are about lived experience. The artists, but also there's the hardship of viewing or the, the pleasurable demand of viewing. They're about us going to meet them there and finding pleasure in the experience of viewing them too. And that's difficult, difficult because we've been trained to see art, her art, any art, not in those terms. We don't ask very much of it. Maybe some of you in the room are offended at this moment because as a matter of course, you do ask a lot of art. I say that's fantastic, but you would be in the minority. I think it's hard to kind of come back to the high seriousness with which someone like Helen invested the act of painting. And by high seriousness, I mean it's life-giving power to her, but I think she would say more fundamentally to, to you, to me, to Clifford. You know, hearing that,
1: I keep coming back to what it was in Helen that, say I knew, that can sort of it, it, Helen declared who she was in the act of painting. And probably everyone in the room is familiar, and hopefully all of you have gotten to Pollock's home and studio. It's quite an experience. And what you see there is, in, in his studio, is the remnants of his activity as an artist, as you will in almost any artist's studio, but there the physical act of painting, of course, was really integral to what he achieved. With Helen, I mean, I was just looking at, at one of the paintings called Provincetown One. It's a particularly mm. luscious picture mm. with pinks. I see people nodding about the color, and it's just such a luscious picture. To me, as luscious as the color is, it's, it's the gesture there are two marks where I could see she literally repeated something where she went bam like that twice and Mm. in the gesture which we can feel when we look at it if you can empathize with that artist making that gesture you have opened up the door into what she's about she's letting you in through her art and Helen was um, she could be pretty severe she could be standoffish Mm. she was a wonderful person if you were Inside the circle, or she was willing to sort of be open of a moment. But she was a fierce character. And in this show in particular, which was, it, we're showing pictures which are from one of the most productive periods, and except towards the end, when Chatham Light, that dark picture, was painted, 69, toward the end of this period. The joy of living, of being in Provincetown, of inhaling the landscape, I literally, I could see, I would visit Helen, and she was married to Robert Motherwell during this period. I remember going up there and, you know, I could feel both of them inhaling the light. And although I was not in the studios when they painted, you could feel that they were exhaling the light and the shapes and the colors. Mm -hmm. Bob did a series called Beside the Sea. And their house and their studio was right sort of on top of a bulwark where the sea would come in. So those splashes that they would see, the beside the seas are literally a splash like that, that Bob anchored in some earthy Mm horizontals. And one can see the bay. There are any number of pictures in this show where I feel she is inhaled in order to exhale. And the exhalation is sort of this show. And I think the invitation is for all of us whether it's myself as, as, as a relative, as an artist, or someone who is, is digging deep in as Alex is, we now, it's our turn to inhale and then
2: exhale. Yeah, and it's interesting because it raises the question of why art at all, at least to me, your reflections in the following sense. Why couldn't I go to a tide pool or one of you and just see, why couldn't we just go outside and look at the clouds and the sky What possibly, in the way of mere art, could top that? Um, Why would there be this detour through art? And I was thinking the same thing today, just in my hotel room watching a YouTube concert, which totally, like a song from a concert, which completely speaks of me as as a young man in the 1980s. It was a Depeche Mode song. And I was thinking, yeah, like... It's like true confessions here. Ah, I, was, I was thinking, this is a really good song. Anyway, I thought, well, you know, a song, a painting, etc. it's an artificial framing or conscription of lived experience into something that I guess many of us are trained to accept as a kind of diversion or escape from the world. And yet we know if you open a novel that you're really moved by, which is a framed thing really like a painting, you feel that the chaos of lived experience, the, tad, the, the tide pool is kind of meaningless, the clouds, oh, that's beautiful. It somehow, by being given aesthetic form, allows you to see life itself. It's, it's a philosopher has a f- phrase about poetry. He says, poetry teaches you to find the stoniness of the stone. If you hold the stone, you're like, yeah, it's a stone, what big deal, like, okay, next, next thing. But there's something about language, visual or written language that's good, that's powerful, that has staying power that causes you to realize, oh, that's a stone. I feel the smoothness, maybe the wetness, I feel the heft of it, the particular heft, and I'll probably remember that experience for the rest of my life. Tim O'Brien has this set of short stories some of you will know about Vietnam called The Things They Carried, and in one of them, the officer, carries a little pebble around in his mouth to remind him of his girlfriend back home. You know, it's, poetry art is like unap- unapologetically sensuous in order to give us the world. It's not an escape, it's giving us the world. But it does so precisely by aestheticizing it, by shaping it, so those watercolors you know, God, I was moved, (laughs) I was moved by one. And I was saying, uh, why is this? And it's because life is so short and the watercolors, which I invite you to look at, you know, it's just the brevity and glory of light. And the artist is not out there for six Sundays in a row trying to match sunlight with a whole smear of pasted paints, she's just, doing it like that, just as quick as the, as the light itself, as quick as a moment itself. That's the really moving thing about Helen. Uh, one, why she was great, like oh, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head who was better than her at living, at getting the, crossing the bridge between life and art, making you feel not only life, but how kind of gorgeous and sad it is. Wow! This little interchange,
1: when we were going through the show, there are four watercolors or gouaches. They're about this big. They're in the first room. And I like playing a game all the time when I'm with friends in any museum or at any show. And I said, Alex, just take the... Te- what's the one you'd like to take home? You don't have to say it's the best. Which is the one you'd like to take? I, of course, knew my choice. And um, I, I felt uh, that sort of bond that happens, of course. He picked the same one that I uh, had long ago picked, and it's one of the things I feel that these paintings, and it's true, I think, of almost any artist, but there's a, even when there's a series that Helen is working on, there is, each painting has its own aspect. You know, she is sort of inviting you to participate in all of her moods, in all of her gestures, and all of her attitudes. And it's interesting because in those four watercolors, they really were four different uh, attitudes. And the one we both responded to was particularly open. I actually would say it is, it is the one that comes closest to failing because mm. it's not resolved. Mm. She didn't finish it off in any way. And, you know, the, the, the power of, and, and it's something Helen, I know, adored because we talked about this, but to make pictures which are open, which are not resolved, is one of the great, great challenges and joys, and you know it's it's sort of um, that large picture I mentioned before. Flood, you know, if you have time after this, uh, go back and look at these pictures, and think about the process that the artist went through to paint them. And I would challenge you not to feel the joy and the exhilaration of the act of painting. These are pictures that I don't know how to put it except maybe to say these pictures loved. Being painted.
2: Oh, that's good, yeah. Yeah. I think with that one, I recall a story she told about it that that whole canvas took up basically the whole studio floor. There was just a little lip around it she could walk around. And it was also in what she called her tree house studio. So it was up and there were trees all around. And, you know, I think. One of the nice things about viewing paintings is you can imagine in what situation were they painted. You don't have to know a conclusive answer, but once upon a time, even the driest painting was a thing robustly in progress, and there was a kind of drama and mystery to its creation, and maybe that's part of Helen's gift to us is that she gives us a sense of the magic of making these things even once they're finished.
1: And and I think that goes to something
2: of that moment and of Helen in that
1: if you look at these pictures, uh, she very often would paint the pictures almost in one shot. There was one summer, you probably know the year better than me, when she painted 43 paintings and I was stunned to learn this. And this is somebody she worked every day and in Provincetown And this show, by the way, as I said, was, I think I did, about uh, Lise Motherwell curated the show, Robert Motherwell's eldest daughter, and with Elizabeth Smith, who's the executive director of the Frankenthaler Foundation. So the show was put together for the Provincetown Art Museum by Lise Motherwell, who still has a home in Provincetown. So the whole genesis of this show and coming to another sun-dappled place like the Hamptons enjoying the light of 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 summer and of the sea Um, this the whole feeling here it really speaks of Helen in a way which uh, I'd say indulge yourselves in terms of letting yourself go with the pictures when I walked through the show I found myself sort of able to empathize not just with each picture but with this sort of unbelievable outpouring of work it sort of made me feel uh, you know, what am I doing here, I better get back to the studio. This is a woman who worked incredibly hard, mm-hmm. and with all the very sort of sexy pictures and that incredible lyric way she had to speak, this was a hard-working person who took her art incredibly seriously, even as she took great pleasure, you know, in it.
2: Yeah, and for me, the 1950s, when she was a young person, are the time when she was mo- had most access to that prolific or protean Gift and I, that's my favorite decade of hers, and it's, um, in a way, I think my book that I've written is, is about someone in their 20s, and how intense that experience is, and how unworked out it is, and the later glories of Helen's work, when she arguably became even too prolific, have to do with her having solved and resolved and achieved a kind of balance and standing and poise in her work, and I, as someone said to me, sometimes the weeds are more interesting than the lawn, and so failure, doubt can be paradoxically the part, of, part of a very powerful painting. You know, something that's I was watching. You must think how many movies can YouTube things can he watch? Isn't he supposed to be reading books, this guy? But it was on the jitney actually. Guilty. I was thinking, this is so high class, like the voice is speaking as an English person, and the movie, I couldn't tell what it was, but Zac Efron was in it, and it was some act, it was like about a play, and in my mildly curmudgeonly way, I just thought, the sound was off, so I was just looking at it, I just thought, "It's it's too perfect, you know, everything is perfect. Where's the, where are the weeds? Where's the, you know, the, the sort of careworn ripple of lived experience is nowhere, it's nowhere. And we have a right to demand that of something that would call itself art. Can't just be an airtight, sanitized container of beauty. Helen's work for me is most available to that sense of life in all of its Shakespearean detail. I think of her as a Shakespeare of the 50s uh, in, in when she was a young person. I want to ask you a question, though. You mentioned Jeannie and Lee's mother, well, and those are the two little girls you see appear nicely dressed uh, with Helen in one of these slides. Let's talk, because obviously we're so incredibly qualified for the following topic, about being a woman in the 1950s. And uh, let's see if we can say something here about how tough and or not tough, it was in Helen's particular case. You, you probably, some of you, have, many of you have seen the irascibles photograph uh, from Life Magazine 1951, and there are, I believe, uh, 18 artists in there, and there's one woman who's, who was about 40 at the time, and the photographer also was a woman, but you know, Helen was 21 at the time, that. Twenty-three when that, twenty-two when that picture came out, and I imagine her saying, "I can do this. I can be one of these people." And well, I she think
1: certainly was irascible.
2: Well, she had that <laughs> right, but I mean, she she could have that standing. So, but do you want to say something about how, let's say, how tough it would have been for her?
1: I mean, I think I, I think I touched on it earlier. I think Helen, as I suppose, almost all women in that period suffered in terms of how society and the art world looked at her because she was a woman. And by that, I think it's important to note that the, the harshest words ever leveled at Helen did not come from men. In spite of the difficulties of dealing with Clement Greenberg and all these macho guys, Joan Mitchell loathed Helen. And Joan Mitchell, you know, it's, it's, it's so well documented now, she referred to Frankenthaler as the Tampax painter or something like that. And she viewed this, you know, this... Kotex, it was, yeah, yeah. It was like, it was just so staggering. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, I have to say, I mean, both both of us are so gloriously qualified for this, Mm. but I did hear from Helen. She definitely was, she was resentful, not of the fact that the path was difficult, that's i think going to be true for almost any hard working artist mm-hmm. i think she was resentful of the fact that people thought it, that it was too easy for her mm-hmm. she her breakthrough painting she painted what age 24 mountains and sea about right? 23 yeah 23 so you know she seemed like the golden girl people didn't read the darker side of her personality that she was struggling with and all her life and mm-hmm. people sort of thought well who's this uppity woman and in fact this went on not just through the 1950s but in a way it almost increased over time mm-hmm. because the, the, the style she had, the personal style, and her ability to lead, uh, lead a sort of a, a relatively luxurious life of hard work with Robert Motherwell, I mean it was the kiss of death when they agreed to be in a vogue spread because it was just you know if you're going to be a painter in the 1950s or even into the 60s, where's that hard life? And Helen, I think, resented the fact that if she was tough, she was criticized as a woman. If she was not tough and was being more feminine, she was criticized as being fortunate or you know, elite. And it, she literally felt boxed in. She could not be one thing or another without being criticized, which is one of the reasons, as life unfolded, into the 80s, into the 90s, as she got older, she became more reclusive, and even as her fame was there, and you know, we promised each other that it would be fun uh, to to really explore the differences, Mm -hmm. and boy, do I have a difference with you over something, Mm -hmm. when you made the comment about the 1950s work, and that perhaps it seemed like you were intimating that her powers lessened over time, and maybe it was less open and less crucial. One of the things that I've discovered, I, like many people, felt that the 50s were sort of the heyday of her work, then the glory of the 60s, which is out there. And a lot of us, and I say us, discounted some of the later periods compared to the earlier. If you don't know Helen Frankenthaler's prints and the woodcuts, they are among her greatest achievements. Uh, You know, not trying to equate Helen with one of the greatest masters, but You don't know Durer unless you look at his prints, and the great prints and the whole effort with prints Mm -hmm. culminated with these woodcuts later in life. And the late work, which John Elderfield, who has been up to now her really most remarkable champion and, and great scholar, John turned to me at one point when we were looking through work and said, we got it all wrong. What he meant by that is these paintings from the 90s. I, As we were curating the, the images, uh, I sort of pushed to put some of the later work. And I don't want to distract the conversation by, by pointing this out too much. But there are three paintings in this cycle, which you will find. There's a very one that's very strong green, another one which is very dark, another one which is very orange. And they are incredibly complex, and they are radiant. I actually think that as time unfolds, Helen's late period will be viewed as commensurate, as a, we talked earlier today about artists we admired. And I think Helen's late work um, is going to be a fun show to do here in another 10 years, <laughs> to, show, to, to see, actually to show and to see how people react to it. We've begun showing it.
2: Well, one thing I'll say on that is many artists have a relatively short period of work. Pollock, really, if you wanted to say that, just count on the drip drip paint, from the drip paintings on to his death, that's nine years. Many photographers I can think of almost perfectly have these 10-year runs, and very few artists have a sustained power like Helen did. no matter how one may estimate the work across decades, she, I think of it as this aquifer she had. She could just draw the way, it was always there. It was, I think, especially there when she was young, but it was always there, and not everyone has that. And that's, um, I think it shows how, how much she had to give to all of us. And again, I would circle that back to viewing, like what does that mean? and you know, one parks the car in the lab, walks in, pays admission, starts looking at paintings, it's very hard to just sort of turn on a switch that says, okay, I will be moved, I will be transformed, but somehow the, just the capacity in us for that to happen, I worry, is it's disappearing, friends. That notion of um, a kind of nameless encounter with something, whose power is in its capacity to lose you, to not chart your time in, or your place on the globe. You know, I think that may be disappearing, and then with that would be Helen's art and much, much art and ways of feeling in the world.
1: It, it just struck me uh, in terms of time, maybe should we leave some time,
2: where's Terry, for some questions perhaps? Sure, absolutely. Are there any questions? Right here, yeah. Um, yes, thank you very much for the presentation. I wanted to
3: ask you about your relationship with Motherwell. And also, I have a number of communities who really feel the iconography of Motherwell in her work. you talk about her uh, influence on her and perhaps some of the other addicts, artists
2: uh, that she admired? Mm-hmm. I think... Um, It's no question that Pollock was the catalyst for her, although her art doesn't look like his. He's the one who really blew her mind with his drip paintings, and specifically in the sense of uh, activating this freedom that was in her, but was kind of inchoate or undeveloped at that point, but she herself said that was the, Basically the the primal moment of her career. I don't know if you want to address with Motherwell.
1: Sure Um, A very interesting thing happened about eight, ten months ago Um, Lise Motherwell, myself, John Elderfield, the great scholar, and Jack Flam, who's head of, of what is essentially Motherwell's foundation, a group of us got together to look at the paintings painted by both these artists during the period they were married and it is stunning to see the vocabulary that, that flowed back and forth. We are going to prepare, Doug Dreispoon was critical to this also, who had been at the Albright-Knox and is now involved with us at the Frankenthaler Foundation. We're going to do an exhibition uh, exploring, literally, the Motherwell-Frankenthaler dynamic. And in this show, there are literally, uh, and this is not to diminish uh, Helen's achievement, there are strokes and moves. It's like learning from a dance partner. And Bob didn't dance. Helen did. But Bob certainly danced with his brush. And if you look at certain mother wells from that period, the same is true. So it was a symbiotic relationship. Yes, right here. You you touched on joy and exhilaration and
3: some images that can sort of show that she's working on the floor, she's working on the wall, multiple images. Can you speak a little bit more about the process?
1: What, What was it like for her when she went into school? Wait, was the music, was, did she deliberate, did she do sketches before, or was, she, mm-hmm. uh, I, yeah. was so I don't know if you all could hear, but the question was generally about Helen's work method in the studio. I was in the studio in the latter part of her career, starting for me when I was a teenager probably, 17 or 18. And what I could see, and what was evident from our discussions, Certainly, working on the floor was a critical component of what she learned, what Alex was talking about, from Pollock, you know, to be free of the easel. There are two short videos, which I recommend any of those that are here interested in her method, look at these five, six minutes of video and you will see an activated athlete working across the floor. It's incredible. But one of the things that I think, and I'd be curious to know in this Alex's view, there's a vision of Pollock as this sort of almost animalistic character, and that as if anybody pouring and and spooning and doing all this, that there's this frenzy. Between frenzies, what you have is the most intelligent and sort of exercised intelligence of how do I organize a picture. Many of the pictures here are, as I said, one-shot pictures, but there's one which is a favorite. It's a painting I had never seen reproduced called Deep Scene right in the middle of this picture, and I can see her doing it, and there was, I think I even selected a picture for this, where she, it's on the wall, and she would have taken a, a crayon and marked on it. So there's a reorganization of those electrifying impulses, which she would have felt. And sometimes, with, with Clement Greenberg, this is a, sort of an infamous situation, but after a picture was painted, Helen, there's one painting that we have, and It is marked and remarked on the back five times. She reoriented the top, and it seems like a crazy thing, but how a picture is oriented is another way to finish or not finish a picture. So whether it was painting again after it was dry, which she would do, there was an enormous amount, and cropping. She would crop off pieces of a painting, so it was was an ebb and flow of, of thought and action.
2: I, I would just briefly answer that a, a painter friend of mine, John Blee, who knew Helen very well in the 1970s, said to me at one point, Alex, you don't you don't understand, like after a day in the studio, it's really, the particular feeling you have is very sensuous, you're very, he likened it to a sexual feeling actually, like a kind of post-coital feeling, you're just kind of blissed out, and it's. he said to me, Writing's not like that, <laughs> which is true. That's right, great. right. Yeah.
3: You mentioned the words one shot painting, uh, which I think some people think of might be a pejorative term, but isn't. But I think it would be worth talking a little bit about what it means to have to make a painting in one fell swoop. So when you're talking about the difference between how Jackson Pollock uh, actively made those paintings, but it, he overlaid things and you know, scraped and repainted and did all that kind of stuff, even though he was working on the floor. But when you're working with the multiplied, non-multiplied acrylic resins like Helen did, you only have one chance to make the painting. There isn't any scraping of it off or really going back. So there's a lot of concentration and in intellectual uh, deciding about where you're going to start and what you're going to do before you even pick up a can of paint or a fricky baster or a squeegee or something like that. Mm. And once it's down, this is actually a perfect example of that, once the color is down and dyed into the canvas, you're done.
1: Look, watch for the next picture because this is a perfect example. You can tell from the fluidity, and here it's an acrylic picture. So that fluidity by nature, but look what happened after, that's that picture. And what Helen would do, and it's funny, John Elderfield, again, he surfaces in these discussions, John can be very critical of Helen's reorganization. And she would say, if we could be looking at a Rembrandt, or we could be discussing one of her pictures, and she would often sort of raise her pinky, and it was a threat of putting in a little bit of red, you know, wouldn't it have been great, you know, the Coro hat, a little bit of red. In but but yeah. pictures like this, that blue line uh, may have been originally generated when it was wet, but the extension of it happened after, and probably, certainly when it was vertical, and probably after it was stretched. So that process can go on. And, you know, in the earlier years, which Alex has been studying and writing about, she's dealing with oil. And when I was trying to bring up mm-hmm. the later work, I actually believe in that later period, like with this, she was trying to get back to that working complexity. Yeah, uh,
2: yeah that's nice. I I like that. Yeah. Yes, right here. Yes. Um, this is a wonderful evening. You make us want to know her. So my question
3: is, um, are there filming interviews that she did for an or an editor or an interview <laughs> with them? Uh,
1: the question is, how can one get to know Helen? Today, with the magic of YouTube, as Alex has pointed out, (laughs) uh, there are actually a surprising number of videos online where you can hear Helen speak about various things. And our foundation is only five years old, but we are continuing to unearth uh, recordings. Those two little videotapes or snippets that that the museum here has put up to show people is an example, because you can see her humor, uh, her intelligence, and her delight in responding to queries, really.
2: Yes. There, there's a very good interview at the Archives of American Art, which you can access online by Barbara Rose, 1968, very thorough, very candid. Yes, go ahead. You about doubt in the world. Um could you walk us through the
3: doubt in any like how it manifests in the painting?
2: Yeah, what a great question. How does the doubt manifest in a painting? Clifford was talking about one painting that you especially like out there in which you can feel her I don't know if this is quite the right word but rescuing it at periodic points so you kind of paint yourself into some trouble and you're at risk of losing the picture losing it's no longer coherent and but somehow the doubt is left in the moments the detours and the dead ends are somehow left into it. I think that would be something. In my own case, yeah, it's a very good question. I, I think there's just, there's a kind of inelegance at in, deliberate and brave and moving inelegance in the 50s work in particular. Mm-hmm. Helen herself, in 1959, she said, look, there is, um, she cautioned against the slickness of the unslick. That is, everyone was trying to be unslick. No one wanted to be slick. So you were unslick, right? You were kind of endearingly, powerfully clumsy, let's say. Clumsy was one of her favorite words, actually, uh, to describe positive effects in her work. But you had to beware of the slickness of the unslick. People were basically fake, fakely unslick. And she, and one of the great things about Helen, for all of her confidence, that can only have come from a confident place, is that she, her unslickness is the real thing. You know, it's, it's um, Deanne Arbus said, it's the flaw we remember, and that has to do with her own devastating clinical search for the killer picture, and uh, be that as it may, but I think there's something there. It's the, it's it's not just in the Sistine Chapel, it's not just God's finger and Adam's finger, it's finally somehow that crack in the plaster too that's a part of the effect. One short thing. When I hear the word doubt and, and in terms of Helen,
1: one of the more memorable experiences I had with her in the studio was she might have finished a cycle of pictures. And she would often invite us, her, her sort of core group in separately because she sort of wanted to download. But I remember at one point a series of pictures that were filled her with doubt. And there was an incredible moment when she turned to, more, to me and, and she just went, oi, Like that. And that, that moment is really as good an expression of, you want to know about an artist's doubt? Oi. And that, that was it.
2: Yeah, she was not always sure, uh, mm-hmm. sure-footed. There's the great moment in, uh, in Amadeus where Salieri writes a note and then looks skyward and like thanks the crucifix there, and its confidence is equated with mediocrity there. You know, that it's, uh, if it's all just coming to you, if it's just like mainlining for you, well, maybe that's not so good. There was, there was a question here, and then I know in the back. Yeah, go ahead.
3: Yeah, we were talking about the important environment for in the forest, and uh, And I understand
1: that in Bogdanstan she has a studios. Um, studio. Is, is, is
3: there a point where you can actually say where she was going to see how that is manifested in her campuses? we are talking about Brian, I live in the Netherlands now, in English, and I can actually see.
1: I just have to say one thing. I think it's a mistake to try to get too tight in yeah. drawing parallels between the real world and any particular picture. Uh, I mean, there are pictures inspired by particular paintings. Mm -hmm. We're talking about, you know, there are two great pictures of Helen's which carry the names of of Rubens's pictures. But when you get to, did she paint this on this street and then moved over three, I think that Helen, she inhaled the landscape and then gave it back with paint. And I think it's a messy process. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it was about one particular view. Those three studios right. were open
2: in years. Well, I disagree a little bit. It's good. always good when go. people disagree, right? I would just say very briefly, she I know she painted a painting, great painting called Mother Goose Melody in 1959 in a garage in Falmouth, Massachusetts because she didn't have a studio. She and Motherwell were renting a place on Falmouth and that was the building available. There, there were actually three garages on the property. So, It's not like I would look at that painting, which is in Richmond, and say, where's the garage? But I would feel that, and I feel, again, just a fantastic thing about Helen is that her paintings are intimate and cosmic, intimate and cosmic, and the garage and all of life. That picture is referencing her childhood very clearly. It's referencing the two little girls who she was getting to know because they were her New hus- her husband's kids, and that garage, I, I think, it's, it's vulgar to say where's the garage, but the, that's there, that's fascinating. Like, I would go on a guided tour of that garage. It would take like 30 seconds, but I would go. I would have an acoustic guide. Yeah. is another yeah. question. So, okay, so uh,
3: I have kind of two, but um, when you speak sort of, of doubt, and I'm Did she throw any of them out or ought to have them? Does she
2: ever mm-hmm. do and, and then the other thing, when you refer to calls, that, you see, that we see
1: calls rather yeah. than whatever. I'm just curious what you meant by sure. I'll answer the first one, Go which ahead. is just yes, she threw out pictures. I don't know about that one year, but she razored up pictures when they were failures, mm-hmm. if they were irretrievable. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
2: So cause rather than effect, effect you know, effect would be just showy, theatrical stuff. Cause would be it's coming from some place. Our, our culture tends to write it very simply as something like, something bad happened to me in my childhood. That's the way I am now, that's why I did that thing. So that's an example, right? And it's not even deliberate, it's just part of who one is. It's a rare artist who's, who can really draw on the medium of herself, not in any simple, stupid, biographical way, like this happened to me, and then that happened to me, and can't you see in my work, no one no one cares about that. They might care in the moment, but they're not gonna care big time. Art is the transmutation of raw personal experience into something we can all get a glimmer of, and again, that's why I think almost the most important person or set of persons in this museum, it's not Helen, it's us, because Again, I would make the case that, which, that for which Helen stood uh, is in danger of disappearing. People don't really know what to make of, uh, again, this push for something that would be intimate and eternal, intimate and eternal. And I think it's partly because we're, it's safer as adults to be skeptical of everything. And then on the other hand, I think um, the notions of beauty and aesthetic response, pleasure have been largely, we've largely chosen to outsource our imaginations to content providers who can tell us about ourselves in that way. It's too, too much of a spiritual journey or something like that. Why not just let other people give us our pleasure? So it's a hard and totally awesome path to not be skeptical and not just have one's content one's pleasure content delivered at the door. Yeah.
1: I think maybe it's time for
2: us to, maybe we have one question. I saw
1: a question there. Janice, is that yours? Yeah. Last question. Hmm. The question is, uh, did Helen influence me? Um, Helen, when I was younger, represented a freer way of life than my immediate family. Mm -hmm. So just to go in that direction was a huge thing. And I'll just end on a a funny thought that was pointed out to both Helen and I by someone. Um, The two main subjects that I trained my camera on were mountains and sea. (laughs) And there goes the subconscious. (laughs)